So, yeah, you ready to do this thing? Arthur, let's do it. Sarah, I mean, you're I, the best person for it. I am so, so stoked to be talking about Arthur. This was such a great movie. 1981, Dudley Moore just freaking killed it. I, and not the 2011 remake with Helen Mirren. Um, blah, blah. That was not good at all. But why are we calling it Arthurian legend? Because, I mean, it was only like a few decades old. It's not like legendary, was it? It was a good movie, but, you know. Um, what? Am I missing something? Do you want to tell her? Uh, you, you, you do it. Well, when we were talking about Arthurian legends because we're talking about King Arthur. Yeah. History. As in, like, the Knights of the Round Table. Yeah. Monty Python. Yeah. Oh, I was not ready for that. Yeah. You're the lit major! Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. And I'm Sarah Ashley. Oh, there you go. Yay! I mean, I guess we could intro you, but you've been on so many times, and you're a tentpole in the Neuronomy family, so it's like... Yay! Folks, if you guys don't know who this is, Sarah Ashley from Nerds on Film. Then you're not a loyal listener. Yeah. You're new. That's okay. That's okay. We like newcomers, too, and if any of you guys are listening to Nerds on History and don't listen to Nerds on Film, you can definitely check that out as well. Yay! You can also go back to uh, I Want My Hoverboard, which I think is your first appearance. Yeah. Um, the Platypus of Languages. Platypus of Languages. Which is like my favorite one. first appearance Cinematron was That's a Prime. Sexy Turkey Minus the Oh, kale. that's true. Oh, yeah. That you and Dave both were on. Cinematron oh, yeah. Prime. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? The recently? Atlantis episode. Oh, well, I wasn't there for it. Right. And, yeah. and I still mentioned, of course, it. The Platypus of Languages. Did you say that one already? We, we said did. that one. Like three times. Sorry. That one's like my favorite episode. And it's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you threw down for that one. That I was... I was like going back into my old textbooks for that one. That was great. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. I have to say, I, I, I held my own against a titan in the room. So, you know, <laughs> you get a little bit of credit for me. Absolutely. Bit. Absolutely. We were both very well researched. High five. That was a terrible <clears throat> high five. Let's do this again. Here's the thing. There we go. Oh, I Sarah did the Woodstock to... episode. Sarah didn't need oh, to... Yeah do any research though because she just knew that kind of stuff she is the research because she has an english degree Yay. Yay. <laughs> yes indeed she speaks i yeah. do clearly and happy summer folks i speak well, good <laughs> yeah. it's kind of almost summer it's not quite i mean it feels like it and it's june but it's, it's not ju- official june it's, is good yeah june is near my birthday this Ooh, is true. birthdays which we have a special birthday episode coming up for Eric uh, very soon. And I'm talking in the third person, but I'm okay with that because it's my birthday soon. I'm allowed to do that. Yes, you are allowed to talk in the mm-hmm. third person on your birthday. Only leading up to your birthday and then the day of, but not after. Sure. But it isn't after your birthday always leading up to your next birthday? It has to be within two weeks. Okay. <laughs> Just want to clarify. Where are all these rules coming from? The uh, big book m- of awesome rules that exist? There's How that. come I never got one? <laughs> well, it hasn't been published recently. Can I get an out-of-print copy? Can you read Egyptian hieroglyphs? I'll learn. Okay, then yes. (laughs) There we go. It's written by Emily Post. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what's better than hieroglyphics? Nothing. Uh, No, listener feedback. No, that's equal, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) This week in listener feedback. We got uh, a really interesting one just a couple hours ago, actually, from uh, a person who chose not to give their name, but they did, in fact... Leave us their handle for their email. And this person is lbaker0916. 
which we'll leave it that because if we give the whole email address, <laughs> we are opening up to lawsuits, lots and lots of <laughs> lawsuits and lots and lots of porn being emailed to you. So, and simply from Sean, that's all that yeah. porn would be coming from is coming from Sean. Yeah. Um, title is you're probably going to get a thousand emails about that episode, but I'm writing anyway. Uh, it starts with I hate Theodore Roosevelt. Well, you do not mince words, do you? Wow, really? <laughs> what kind of right? That's the, a uh, terrible thing to say, I know. And I guess I don't actually hate him, it's just hard to identify with him as a human being because, frankly, there's so much stuff out there that shares all this crazy badass stuff but it glosses over his serious fundamental human flaws. To make a long story short, this person actually didn't want me to read all this on the on it. In fact, he said, don't feel like you have to read this shit on the air. It's just interesting crap I thought I'd send along. And he said so we'll, we'll bleep Bleep. That's now two bleeps. We have only one more bleep available, and then we start paying. So, <laughs> Oh, careful, I am Brian. storing it up. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> to make a long story short, let me just bullet point what they were talking about. He mentioned that uh, John Hay, who was the Secretary of State under TR, was a large part of how the Panama Canal got built. And that after uh, John Hay passed away, TR basically dismissed all the work he did and took credit for, for himself. So that's the argument he makes. Um, he also makes the argument that uh, Taft was a better president and that Taft did a lot more for trust busting and didn't do as much for the public recognition that Roosevelt did. And I think, you no, know, to each their own. Yeah. Taft yeah. also didn't really want to be president and didn't it's true. really like the role anyway. He was later quoted as saying that uh, he was... He felt like he was much more effective as the Chief Justice of the United States than he was well, because he as was. the President. <laughs> and it's true, he was. And he's the only person to have that distinction as well. That's that right. That served in both offices. And you know what? I think we did acknowledge in the episode, though, that you know TR wasn't perfect. And we said that. We, we did talk him up a lot because we both kind of idolized him for the good things that he did do. Uh, and the kind of persona and personality that he has, because I definitely uh, associate with the showman aspect of it all. I, I'm a very bombastic kind of yeah. energetic and, and excited person. Uh, but no, I, I think he's quite right. Obviously, there's going to be two sides to every coin. And while we didn't dive too deep into that, uh, that's what listener feedback you know, is oftentimes for. <laughs> and not every president is going to be perfect. In fact, none of them have been perfect. Um, some presidents are more known for their flaws than their strengths. I think Roosevelt was one who was known for his strengths more than his weaknesses. I agree. And of course, he has a larger-than-life personality, so that is just going to kind of go with it no matter what. Right. You know, he would have been that way whether he was president or still just the governor of New York or whatever he was, you know? Correct. Sarah? Andy had a stuffed animal named after him, and that's important, too. We just talked about that last did week. Did you? Okay. Yes, did. I haven't listened to the episode. Well, <laughs> you're a horrible person. I'm just a little behind. <laughs> Shame on you. Nevertheless, L. Baker 916 we appreciate your feedback, and we thank you. We welcome differing opinions on the show. Of course we do. Yeah. Well, okay. Speaking of larger than life... Speaking of uh, kind of legends speaking loudly, why don't we speak on our topic for today? And uh, Miss Ashley, would you like to introduce today's topic, considering you are our honored guest? Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, we are talking about King Arthur. And there is, you know, some debate as to whether King Arthur truly existed or not. There's a lot. I find that debatable. Exactly. <laughs> it's debatable. I think it's more that he was a person, but we'll get to that later. Right. But is was he a king? Was there really a Camelot? All this other stuff. It, of course not. Yeah. There, there are still some people who, um, who don't believe that there's been enough hard evidence to say that he truly existed. But um, he's definitely become a lot bigger than perhaps he ever was right. in his life. Um, 
and this really does come from from literature and tales and folklore and um, what was you know probably started off as oral tradition um, expanding beyond that. Oh, absolutely. And so um, it's it's pretty interesting too because you see the dynamics of how Arthur's character has changed and the people sure. that surround him in his life have changed. Um, and so yeah, that yeah. it's just oh, it's so interesting. <laughs> so to me, to, to me, when we're going to talk about Arthur, there are three questions that come to mind, and I think you've already answered part of one of them. One. Why are the legends so popular? Like, why do they resonate Mm -hmm. the way they do? Two, when do they date back to? And three, how has the story changed as they have have progressed throughout the centuries? So I think that is definitely the the meat and potatoes of it. But I, I think there has to be one other question to kind of kick us off with. And back to Sarah's point, was Arthur real? Is there an actual historical basis that starts and propels this legend and this myth forward? And... Yes, in my opinion, it's yes and no. I think there's always some sort of history uh, behind everything, right? To the degree of how closely it matches, that is what is being debated more than anything. Yes, there is always going to be that question of it. Um, I think that goes back to partially when when does it date back to, because the legends go back, what, 1,200 years at this point? Well, the, the very first uh, examples of a, of a written Arthurian legend date from about 800 CE. So they reference, however, a king existing about 200 years before that. In the 5th century. During the, right? during the 6th and, and the latter half of the, of the 5th century. It yeah. was, uh, yeah, 6th century. You get the first, the first citation of something that kind of sort of mentioned something related to Arthur. Right. And then they never yeah. outright say they Arthur. They never and, actually outright say, outright say uh, uh, Arthur. And let me correct myself. I said 5th yeah. century, later half. I meant to say 6th century, later half. Right, right, right. So Arthur wouldn't actually be named until the 9th century in a written history. Um, before that, it was um, kind of famously notice, uh, noted with um, Gildas, uh, St. Gildas, mm-hmm. um, who was a monk. And there were two two stories written about his life. Um, and one of them refers to a battle that was supposedly the battle when Arthur fell. Right. We, we have to remember that Britain, well, first of all, the culture of, of Britain goes back thousands of years. Yes. And I think this ties back to those ancient Welsh, Celtic, British roots right? right just like Boudicca or Bodicea it's from that not from the quite the same time frame but it's it's equally as ingrained into British culture and in British identity and um I think that's why we're talking about it yeah tonight and likewise so is the whole idea of knights and chivalry too right I mean look at St. George St. George is the famous knight who slayed a dragon yet he and he's a saint so it's also very much tied into these early saints too, who bring, who propagate these. Well, right. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of transition that people used a lot of what was traditional Celtic fo- folklore and ended up using that to help further the Christian cause. Not saying that was a bad thing, but they used it as a way of relating. Sure, because sure. all of this, as it's recorded and written down, even in earlier periods when we're talking about Boudicca, is all written by outsiders, right? It's not yeah. written by the Celts themselves. So we we don't have an actual written record from their perspective. We have to go on what others are talking about. Yeah. One thing it is interesting to note, though, that does add to some validity of there being an, a figure of the name Arthur, whether he was a king yes. or not, most likely not. In fact, modern scholars 
believe... Uh, who's a prince? Well, maybe think. not even a prince, but just a, a soldier or somebody who was uh, heavily involved in, in leading troops in the battle. Yeah, his uh, the original translations, when you look at the first histories when he's named, he is actually listed as Arthur the Soldier. That's right. And Arthur, as a name, is very interesting as well, because the, the root of the word, or root of it, Arturo, is, is bear in, in the Celtic language. And there are many different legends surrounding bears within the Celtic language. It's a very powerful animal. Uh, obviously, it would be associated with somebody who was, who was a you know, keen warrior. But what I find even more interesting is that around the 6th century, Arthur explodes as a name in Scotland and mm-hmm. uh, in, in the areas throughout northern Britain at that time. And it becomes obvious that there's something motivating people to be naming their children Arthur. Uh, there has to be some sort of figure at that time that's prominent enough, that's popular enough yeah. to encourage that to happen. Whether they were king or not, it seems highly unlikely based on the other evidence that's that's presented. Right. Well, I'm looking at the time frame. Uh, the Britons and, and the people who were living in, um, you know, Wales, Scotland, England, Ireland at the time, they were being invaded by the Saxons. Mm-hmm. You know, it's how we became Anglo-Saxon. But <laughs> um, but Arthur at the time was the man who was going through and defeating repeated, you know, battles with, with the Saxons. And so, you know, he was, he was kind of, you know, getting lauded as a hero all about the area. In a way, I mean, this is a point in time where I felt like the British Isles were, were constantly being... Yeah, they were changing hands all right, the time. Right, exactly. Yeah. If it wasn't the Celts, it was then, like you said, the Romans. Then it was the Saxons and or the Picts or the Britons, and then, and then yeah. eventually the Normans. Mm-hmm. And in, in fact, since you mentioned the Picts, that's one of the legends about Arthur too. That the Arthur that we think of as the commander is believed to have died fighting off the Picts. Yeah. And what I find is very interesting this whole idea of death and battle, and we see that as we get to the later half of his life, when as the legend gets more fleshed out, I'm almost wondering, did they take what we knew as fact and then project that into the legend as well. Yeah, and what we're talking about in terms of fact is very circumstantial, right? There has been no concrete archaeological evidence to suggest that anything is Arthurian, right? Using that term and trying to connect it with archaeology, it really just doesn't happen. There's, you know, what's going on in the 6th century in Britain. Sure, we've got a lot of archaeological evidence for that. But there's nothing to specify anything that uh, would closely resemble Camelot or any other of these elements of the myth and legend that would become so popular in the the 12th century. There's nothing has been found that is archaeological. They could be substantial. No, it's pretty much only literary. Yeah, I think... um... Sir Thomas Mallory, and we we will talk about him soon because he's very important. You know, implied that the castle of Westminster was uh, was the site of Camelot. Oh, uh, Winster. Was it Winster? Winster, yeah. Oh. And I and they had like a, a round table hang like there on display for a, yeah, quite and, a long yeah, time that fact, fit twenty four. Very seats. heavily influenced by the court of Henry the Seventh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, you I, know nobody ever made round tables before this. No, Arthur invented them. Duh. Duh. <laughs> um, but there was also, um, I, you know, somebody found like a, a tall rock monument that had some etchings into it that could sort of maybe be implied it was Arthur, but it's a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> It's it a bit could of a stretch. sort of, maybe, kind of. If you're looking for it, if that's you, the answer. <laughs> if you look at it upside down and squint and squint with direct light in your eyes it's believable 
Well, let's let's break down the timeline. The, other than St. Gildas, the next time we see Arthur's name mentioned is the history of the Britons from about 830 AD, and that's from the author Nessius. Uh, or, sorry, Nennius, I should say. Um, but again, it goes back to this idea that Arthur, a Christian general, was defending Britannia from the Anglo-Saxons. Um, but it also is interesting because they, they attach a lot of battles to Arthur's name, like 12 different battles from varying mm-hmm. times and places to where a person couldn't have lived this long to have fought these many battles. So that's where we start to see, okay, took fact, now we're projecting legend yeah. onto yeah. it. Yeah, but Nennius was a bit of a ninny. He uh, just wanted to say that. I had to. I don't know that. Yeah. He was probably very You just wanted to say that. I, yeah. I, it wouldn't be complete as an episode if I didn't. Yeah, right. Um, and then there was also Igodadin, which I'm not even sure if that's how you pronounce it, but there's a lot of Ds in there. We're going to uh, go with that. Yeah. Oh, if it's D, it's Welts. Usually it's Seth. Uh, not necessarily. Ladies and gentlemen. Are the double Ds? If you're Welsh. And you know what? You know what? Why am I even asking that? You're Welsh. You're going to let us know. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. The Welsh will I don't know us. if we have a very big audience in Wales, but... Uh, I hope you guys do. That'd be cool. That'd be awesome. Um, but they, you know, there was a, a, it was a medieval Welsh poem that also, you know, spoke to, to Arthur um, being mentioned in there as well. But you really find the peak in the 12th century... Yeah, you do. Not the peak, but like the, well, the big the change. The basis of, of so much of what of is so recognized. much more, yeah. We're talking yeah. about, we're really, yeah, after we get to, basically when we get to Crutch and right. We're talking about yeah. Excalibur and Camelot and well, Guinevere, all of that comes so in. Not quite. No, not quite. So when you hit the 12th century, you look at Geoffrey of Monmouth. Thank you. And I brought him up because I yes. he didn't. I was going to. Yeah, and he did He did his um, History of British like, Kings. Yes. And um, I think he may have also written something about Merlin, too. What, what I love is that he plays the uh, the very same card that Joseph Smith played uh, with the Book of Mormon. He said that this comes from an ancient lost manuscript that only he knows how to translate. Yeah. He claimed it was from an ancient lost Celtic manuscript. And he was only the only people who knew like the language to translate it. Right. So, uh, But yeah, this is a big deal because this is where other major pieces get added to the legend, right? Cause yes. Because now we're starting to see his betrayal, his whole... Mm-hmm birth and death they mentioned avalon for the first time yes they you also mentioned guinevere and merlin yes and merlin was a big deal and um, his father as well yeah um, um, caliburn as well though of course we now know it later as excalibur. excalibur yeah yes. um so these are so see, these are other big points this is not the the lancelot part of it just yet but we're but we're still getting more of these pieces that are very important that we know as yeah. the very specific arthurian right um i don't want to say tropes but i want to say like themes themes things that were just assigned to arthur absolutely um, yeah his, his accessories <laughs> <laughs> also to note that this was a a very popular version of the tale to the point now where even by modern standards there are 200 written manuscripts that still exist yeah of this version of the story well let's face it it's a lot more interesting it is more interesting yeah. but 200 manuscripts at this point in time considering everything was handwritten that's yes. impressive that's it that is really impressive so you have a lot of copies um there are a lot of copies out there those monks must have gotten handwritten <laughs> copies but think about britain in the 12th century and and the kind of identity crisis that it's going through mm-hmm. and the fact that it wants to tie back <clears throat> In a big way to its to its ancient origins and and be proud of it and be able to have a hero of it and and pride and heroism. I'm so glad you you use those words because this Arthur he kicks ass and he takes names. Yeah, and he is he is a champion 
who is out on the battlefields. And that is very important for you guys to know because when it comes to later Tales of Arthur, his character changes and he becomes dignified and wise and a man who's effectively resting on his laurels yeah because he's not a man of action anymore um in in later tellings um but at this point you really do have something that is much more traditional from what that culture was valuing at that time and not only that but to bring it back to a previous episode with Boudicca you have her reemergence happening in and around this time period as well, a couple hundred years later, but it, it makes a big it makes sense to see where people are thinking and why it gains in popularity and why it just continues to kind of right grow, even though it does kind of die off and come back right. again in the yeah. 19th century. Totally, and it makes sense too because if you're talking about the influence at this time, you were talking about I mean, other than the Celts, which were also a very strong warrior people. You've also got the Anglo-Saxons, which were also a very strong warrior people. So yes, yes, we were. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I'm sorry. The thing, the thing that I love about Arth- like Arthurian legend and this stuff is because it totally speaks to the roots of my people, <laughs> and so I like geek out hardcore over it when it's like, yes, warrior people. We painted ourselves blue and put lime in our hair and attacked them naked. <laughs> yeah, and just, everyone's like, these people are freaking nuts <laughs> seriously the ancient Celts were scary on a battlefield <laughs> oh totally yeah they would spike but, up their hair and everything but they yeah. had though afterwards the softest hair the, uh, yeah. the lime yeah. it, it does wonder lime well, and also, poop yeah, I was gonna say they, they yeah. put, I was gonna say they put dung in their hair yeah. too well yeah. you know don't yeah. don't knock it till you've tried it ladies and gentlemen <laughs> wow <laughs> I'm just saying experimental archaeology is kind of my thing and there I'm not go. beyond putting feces there's in my hair there's <laughs> and then there's sad <laughs> oh I, I don't think it's sad. I'm, I'm deeply offended. <laughs> okay, cool. Then you can leave. Wow. Guys, he really, guys. He's very like. I think you should settle this with some blue paint and, and feces in our hair. And dung, yeah, exactly. And just fight it out naked. You know what? You know what? <laughs> I'm going to return that caca moose that I got for you for, for, for your birthday. I know it's months away, but you know what? I'll use it myself. <laughs> okay. Good. Anywho, enjoy. <laughs> Going <laughs> enjoy. back to Arthur, um, we're getting to a point now where, as we talked about in the Platypus of Languages episode, or I should say, you guys talked about in the Platypus of Languages episode, we're now getting to a point where the Normans take over. Correct? Yeah, yeah. So um, at this point, you'll notice um, if you look on, if you actually go to Wikipedia, they have a really good bibliography just listing out damn near everything that is related to um, King Arthur. Uh, text-wise. And if you look, a lot of these texts are written in Latin, and then they also go right into French. And that is just because, um, yes, with the Norman invasion, your upper class has has all been replaced by French speakers. And so, um, and they're sending all of this information back to the continent and it's getting traded back and forth. And so the more people you introduce to this legend, the more it's going to expand and change. Clary, you've got to hear about this, Arthur. You you have to hear about it. It is what it made me cry. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's, that's the moment uh, that Arthur was first mentioned to anyone in France. Yeah. I, like, I do that. I channel history. You did. You it did. I, it was really yeah. crazy. You even kind of grew like a little French <clears throat> beauty mark, like right on your cheek. I yeah. did. I, oh, <laughs> oh, wait. No, that's going to be better. Sorry. Oh, okay. And uh, <laughs> more, more particularly, if we're going to talk about uh, of the Norman kings, we're, if we talk about Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, their court, there was a pretty big influx of English and French literature yeah. going back and forth. And you're right. It made its way to France and mm-hmm. gained popularity there. Celtic France, to be more specific. Um, but then we also, we, that brings us to Crescent de Troyes, 
right? Chrétien de toi. Chrétien. See, Sarah took French as well. I so took four is, years of French. <laughs> she is so aptly prepared for this episode. We can sound like we're French, kind of. Kind of. Kind of. Cretien. Or as I call them, Cretin de toi. Yeah. Yeah, Cretin. Cretin. Cretin de Cretin de Cretin de Troyes. <laughs> Cretin de Troyes. This is another major milestone um, in, in Arthurian legend because this is now the introduction of Lancelot and uh, Percival and Tristan and other uh, Knights of the Round Table. That's right. All still within 12th century, mind you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is yeah. all circa um, the 1170s up to the 1190s. Yeah, this is a big deal yet yeah, because now you're starting to see the, influ- the, the more heavy influences of Christianity, the yes. quest for the Holy Grail. Yes, that's, right. that's what right. I was about to say. Chivalry. Mm-hmm. You know. Coconuts. Chivalry. Yes, coconuts, coconuts. from You've Monty got Python. Coconuts, you're banging them together. <laughs> <laughs> we oh. found them. <laughs> oh my god, it's so. so Are you good. saying coconuts migrate? <laughs> <laughs> Camelot. Oh, Camelot. No, let's not go there. Tis a silly place. It's only a model. Hello, who is it? <laughs> yeah, actually, can I just say that is really funny how much they make fun of the French in that movie when it's like, dude, if it wasn't for the French, you wouldn't even have a Holy Grail story to talk exactly. about, which is what, which is what I'm, and I'm sure the Monty Python guys knew that because they right. were all historians. Not to go all Dan Brown, but of course, the word Holy Grail derives from the French sans lil, right? Mm-hmm. So it's supposed to mean Holy Cup, but it can also technically it, mean Royal Blood. Uh, it, well, it also means a plate. Like, actually, um, so... This was something I was That's reading. That's a new one. The Plate of Christ. The Plate, <laughs> the plate of Christ. So what I was actually reading Dipping on the... Dish, perhaps? In the original story of... I think it's Ewan. It's, it looks like E-V-A-I-N, but it's pronounced Ewan. Yeah. Um, like Ewan McGregor. Yes. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> no, no, no swooning. Sorry. Save your swooning. You just say Ewan McGregor and I'm just... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think for Celtic men. I think she just wants Obi-Wan to save her, to be honest. I really wanted to read the phone book to me. That's what I want. Um, <laughs> but there's... Of all the things you want him to do, you want him to read the phone book? He's got a really great accent. All right. <laughs> and if, I know it would take him a long time. Or it used to... An old phone book. <laughs> yeah, what the hell is a were, phone book? When they were like dictionary sets. He can read all of Wikipedia to you, me. He'll just get, get him the Yellow Pages app on his phone. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll, he'll just be scrolling through that right. and re- reading through that way. I'll have him read Yelp reviews. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, so so the story of Ewan, I, I believe it was him. It was one of the ones that was, oh, maybe it was Galahad. Point being, one of the knights was going, he was at the castle of the Fisher King, who was injured, but he is the one who is charged to care for the Holy Grail. And there was a there was a thing where they were talking. It was like an early early note of it where they were saying that he somebody walked by with a grail, and a grail is just more of like a serving dish of some sort. And um, it was weird because the only thing that was in there was a mass wafer, um, as in the Catholic tradition of mass. And so um, there, it was it was like a really early telling of how that whole thing played out and how that led to what eventually became the blown out Holy Grail story. Yeah. Well, that's really because so, for a second I thought you were talking about just this massive wafer. A massive <laughs> wafer, a giant cracker. No, it was because uh, <laughs> it was because the Fisher King, who was injured in the upper thigh or groin area, depending on how you interpret it, but most likely meant that he had his manhood hurt, which was supposed to be a major dishonor. Um, but he was 
on a religious fasting thing going on. And the only thing he could eat was the wafer and the night. Is that what one does when one's manhood is hurt? When when you're when you are a person who is charged with keeping something sacred protected, but then you had your manhood hurt, therefore you are seen as inequipped to do your job. And so he was doing a fasting thing in order to still prove his honor. Ah, in a masculine society where yeah, manhood is also the sign of your skills as a warrior it makes yeah, sense yeah kind of yeah and and if the if the knight had just asked him the right questions he would have been able to take the grail and complete his quest and go off and do his thing it was like it was really weird i kind of skimmed that earlier today and i was like well that seems very interesting <laughs> yeah definitely well let's move on then Unless you had more you wanted to, to add no to no i just that whole that basically introduced the idea of a romantic version of King Arthur. This is where I say it becomes very continental yeah. um, because it is no longer it's not, slightly not just English anymore. It's not just English anymore or slightly uncivilized warrior culture, but maybe but it's becoming more of a of a bigger civilization yeah. aspect. It, it's so. now taken shape. It's no longer a a war fable. Right. Like you're saying, it's it's now also become this whole spiritual quest yes. along with it too. Yeah. yeah. And it's and it's courtly and, and it's, it's courtly. chivalrous. Sure. Which none of which would have actually existed. But we're just missing one world. final piece of that, right? Which comes in the late 15th century with Sir Thomas Mallory. Yeah, but before Sir Thomas Mallory. Oh, really? There's yes, so in the between. 13th century. Ooh. Thirteenth century is where you have the Lancelot Grail. They call them the it's the Lancelot Grail cycle, or otherwise known as the Vulgate cycle. Um, this is the introduction of Lancelot falling in love with Guinevere and having that love triangle. Mm, okay, mm. you know some people say that the story of Tristan and Isolde, which was a much more older Celtic tale, was what inspired the idea because that story is about a love triangle inspired the idea of the love triangle between um lancelot arthur and guinevere the and love triangle bit is the bit that i i just i, I tune it out oh I'm you don't so like that part. done with it <clears throat> like whatever and it may just be because of popular modern media yeah we all saw the richard Gere movie yeah i'm just kind of like <laughs> done with it i'm done with it well it's the tropes have been carried over time and time again it, yeah. tristan and Isolde is also a very popular opera mm-hmm is it, I mean, you can see, I think, some... Is there some elements that carried over to Romeo and Juliet, too? Or am I getting my stories no, mixed? No, no, you're getting your stories mixed. So Tristan okay. Isolde is the story of... Um, Tristan is sent by his uncle, the king, right. whom he respects as a father, to, to go fetch Isolde and to be his wife. And then along the way, um, some potion is involved. And it depends on how you look at it. Some stories say that they both took the potion unwillingly or they didn't know that they were taking it or um, Isolde convinced Tristan to take it. But either way, they took the potion and they fell in love. And that potion then binds them together as lovers. And so even though Tristan takes Isolde back to King Mark um, and Isolde respects Mark because he's very kind to her and, and there's like there's that definite idea of like they all love and respect each other. But for some reason, Tristan and Isolde are just—they're just linked, and they can't shake it. And then eventually, Mark finds out and tries to, you know, kill them or whatever. And Tristan ends up going away and marrying some other woman named Isolde. <laughs> and so, um, it was yeah, it was wow. a little crazy. Mm-hmm. Tristan needs to see a therapist. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. 
Um, probably a call to Dr. Drew would have been good. Um, <laughs> but there's also um, the post-Vulgate cycle. So this was right after the Lancelot Grail cycle, and it's very similar um, with just a few extra things added in. Um, I think this is also, you know, where Morgan Le Fay comes in and the the much more... The expanded Arthur universe, <laughs> if we can call it that. Oh, Sarah, well done. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, this is where you're, uh, it's still pretty Arthur heavy, but you're starting to get more and more and more adventures with other knights. Right. Um, and, Arthur's becoming kind and of a support character at this point. Exactly, because what becomes more interesting is everything that's happening to these knights and the adventures that they go on. But that makes total sense, though, because if we're talking about storytelling at this point in time, if you want your story to have any kind of resonance to it, you tie it to a well-known yeah. existing character, right? Which yeah. in this case was Arthur. Exactly. So essentially at this point, uh, Arthur's becoming Professor X. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And he's sending his X-Men out on all the adventures, and that's where all the really interesting stuff's going on. But he's just kind of this binding character that keeps them all motivated and together. Yeah. No, no, I would I would totally agree with that. And it's going beyond just the English and the, the Normans and the French. It is going into Germany. It is going up into the Netherlands, and, and it's going into Italy. It's spreading. So people are just finding this story, especially the way it's been adapted now for, for a more courtly style um it's just resonating with more and more people sure and that is when we start to get sir thomas mallory (laughs) thank you no absolutely i think sir thomas mallory is quintessential to this entire story and uh all right here we go oh that's a that's a big gaping portal look out oh message for you guys oh Oh. that looked like that hurt right in his chest oh my god what's on it oh snap there's a note on this, dude. Oh, read it. Okay. Um, oh, it's from audible.com. And apparently, you can actually find a lot of Arthurian legend stories on audible.com. Yeah, this this new ad campaign they're doing with the arrows. It's awfully aggressive. It is a little bit, but I like it. Yeah. I like where they're going with it. You all right over there, Brian? Um, kind of. Okay. Well, it looks like it hurt, but I, okay, I think this is a really good financial opportunity for us. So I think we should, we should totally take advantage of this situation. So everybody, if you can go to audibletrial.com slash nerdonomy. Don't forget, don't forget the ad on the website. Oh yeah. And there's ads all all over the website. Thank you, Brian. Um, and, uh, and yeah, go, go find some Arthurian legends. Um, I sign up up for a free trial. Yep. You get to try it out. If you don't like it, you know how to stick with it. If you sign up though, we get a little bit of something. <laughs> yep. Oh. <sighs> How was that? It's still bleeding. Oh, okay. Well, mm. we're just going to do the rest of the episode without you if you want to, like, go rest up. No, no, I'm, 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 I'm not dead yet. Okay. I'm, sure. I'm doing, I'm doing okay. Okay. You know well, what it is. Even that... if, if, if you die, you will have not have died in vain. You will have died for audible.com. I'm not going to die. <laughs> well, okay, then you will not have been mortally wounded in vain. No, no, no. I'm actually, I think I'm getting better, actually. I think oh. I can. I think I can go with you guys. Okay. Well, fear not, Brian. We'll be back for you. So I'm um, just gonna um, just gonna stay here then, huh? Yeah. You. Yeah. You better. Okay. Just you know, fashion some needle and thread out of that chest hair of yours. <laughs> You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. <laughs> that was our semblance of trying to recreate a, yeah. a, a skit from Mighty Python and the Holy Grail. We we it was. More of a, an, an of homage? It. Yes, it was. <laughs> I'll, I'll call it a, a nice homage, a nod to. It was just acting.
acting. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, I definitely have to get the died in vain. Oh, nope, not more mortally wounded in vain. <laughs> so, yes, 15th century is when we get Sir Thomas Mallory and the Meurs de Tour. This is effectively a compilation of the best of the best of Arthur's stories as Mallory saw it. Correct. And finally, we get the final finishing touches, too. We finally mm -hmm. now get to see Camelot. The whole puzzle comes together at this mm -hmm. point. Certain things are obviously kept in their um, Excalibur, and how Excalibur is given has always kind of been a little bit of a of a dicey subject, because some people say that Excalibur was the sword in the stone. Other people say it was given to him by the Lady of the Lake. Correct. Sir Thomas Mallory includes both. <laughs> exactly. I like to think the Lady of the Lake put the sword in the stone and let it sit there for a while. Right. So the story is that Excalibur, that basically he pulls the sword out of the stone because that is the demonstration that he is in fact the true king. Correct. Based on divine right and divine bloodline, et cetera, et cetera. Which is, of course, a very important element toward ruling at this point in time. Yes, definitely. Um, and I believe that Mallory does say that that is Excalibur. And then he also says that when Arthur's sword is damaged, the Lady of the Lake bestows upon him Excalibur again. Well, there's also a scabbard that was given. Yeah to him that according to that the enchanted scabbard kept him invincible mm -hmm. uh, and as long as this, the scabbard was never left his body he would never be harmed and yeah. that, apparently later on in the battle with Mordred that's what oh Morgan Le Fay ch chucked that thing into the into the we'll get to Morgan Le Fay in a second <laughs> yeah that's an interesting story that's, actually that's like the first get... like that's a, like the first like King Arthur after hours no I know right <laughs> actually <laughs> <in the story. laughs> actually let's talk about that a little bit now why not before we get into the diving of that, like uh -huh. this was so big. So Henry VII was a, he was a huge fan of King Arthur, so much to the point where he named his son Arthur because he wanted an actual King Arthur to usher in a new era. After I mean, keep in mind again, he had just taken over from the, after the War of the Roses, right? So right. he had he wanted to usher in a new dynasty with a whole new sense of England, and I just think it's kind of kind of cool that like he actually baptized his son that because of this legend that had carried. Yeah. so far it, it's kind of like um you know my sister naming her son luke because of the force yes that's awesome <laughs> actually it was her husband i'm pretty sure who 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 managed to make that point happen. being is that kid's name is luke because of star wars and that's great yeah he will literally walk up to my brother-in-law and say you know i'll be the other way around but luke i am your father <laughs> <laughs> that's great and it's pretty cool um it, it's kind of it's kind of the modern equivalent yeah. of, of that yeah but Luke can be thinking, you're his dad. And his dad can be going, no, I'm your father. Exactly. Why aren't you guys laughing? That's the actual line from the movie. It's not Luke, I'm your father. It's no, I am your father. Right. We know. I hate you guys. It's all in delivery, Brian. We've talked <laughs> about this delivery. before. <laughs> <laughs> That's See, okay. now we're laughing. <laughs> now it's at just my expense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now it's just at your expense. Whatever. Um, Still hate you guys, but let's move forward. <laughs> So there's still, um, but there's still definitely changes happening. And up to this point, not only has Arthur's character changed, but Morgan Le Fay's character has changed. When she first appeared in these stories, um, Le Fay quite literally means the fairy in this context. And so Morgan Le Fay does have supernatural powers that has always been included in the stories, um, but she was always seen as a healer um, in the early stories. 
who has saved Arthur's um, life and the, the lives of his knights several times over. She has also grown increasingly mischievous, uh, much like the way a fairy kind of is in um, the, the Celtic tradition. And so a lot of the adventures that these knights are going on, they are sort of prompted by Morgan Le Fay in certain ways. Um, classic tale being um, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And I love this story. I highly recommend it to anybody who wants to kind of start to get into King Arthur stories. But this one is is the the twist, spoilers, is that um, Morgan Le Fay is really the one who causes this whole thing. And she's doing it mostly just because she wants to scare the pants off of Guinevere. It is. It's really mischievous. She didn't really mean anything by it other than, yeah, she just wanted to scare Guinevere, who she notoriously dislikes, um, being that Morgan Le Fay is the half-sister of Arthur and um, I guess Morgan Le Fay had a string of lovers at one point and Guinevere straight up kicked her out of the castle and put her flat out on her ass and yeah, yeah. well it's it's a very we get into a very like I said after hours approach to this because yeah. as the story goes if we're following the kind of the storyline from Excalibur and a couple other stories too Merlin enchants Arthur's father Uther to look like Morgan's father who then seduces her mother and therefore produces Arthur as the uh, son. And then as a kind of a way of her wanting to get back at that, I guess she eventually seduces Arthur as an adult, which is really kind of effed up because now we're talking about this incestuous relationship that gives birth to Mordred, right? Yeah. So really, it's just, it's Merlin's fault. No. No, we didn't say that. No, Merlin like, was just was serving his king. I don't know if he foresaw that Mor- Morgan was going to go batshit. That's our that's our last bleep. You just used it. Uh, I think he should have had a little foresight, considering the fact that he was a wizard. Well, yeah, and he actually does have. There, they do say that his gift is the gift of foresight. <laughs> he and actually he couldn't see, see that this whole thing was kind of going no. But in here's a bad the thing: direction. he see, he sees the things that happen, and he knows that his visions are true. And no matter what he does, they will always happen. So he may advise against to Uther, but ultimately Uther was the king, so he had to kind of do what he wants, or he was going to die. So, but actually, it's not. So this is where it gets a little. Um, a little muddy because Morgaus and Morgan Le Fay are two different characters, but they become merged together. So Mordred originally was the illegitimate son with Morgaus. Okay. And then when they changed it to Morgan Le Fay, that's when it became becomes incestuous. But before that, it wasn't. Okay. Um, so let's bring, let's explain Morgaus because she also comes up in the more contemporary version. Yeah. Of the tale so too. she's also she's also Sir Gawain's mom. Okay. Yeah. So that's uh, that's kind of like her. That's her big thing is that she's the she is the mother to several knights, one of which being Sir Gawain, the other being Mordred. Who Mordred is eventually then the downfall of of Arthur. Right. So that's kind of the the son who wants to usurp the crown. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then of course that's where we get to the you know the famous death of Arthur. He gets laid to rest at Avalon, and the story kind of ends there right yeah. as far as the legend goes but yeah and avalon also i i think it means the island of apples i think so yeah yeah which i think is kind of cute yeah <laughs> um, take a second to talk about merlin because mm-hmm. i mean we don't have time merlin to be totally honest deserves his own episode yeah really does um but merlin was also based off of a real person uh i can't pronounce his name but it's it looks like meridin wilt a welsh prophet and madman 
who was eventually, as as his story got changed, Jeffrey of Monmouth also, when he added him into the Arthurian legends, added the whole fact that he was a mix between... There's always been a mix that he's his father was an incubus. Right. He's part demon. A demon. And that's where he gets his magical powers from. Obviously, the real Merlin did not have magical powers. He was just a prophet. That also explains his, one of his powers of foresight. Yeah. So, um, and the, the real Merlin actually believed he was able to predict how he was going to die, which was some ab- absurd mixture of falling to his death, being impaled, and drowning at the same time. Supposedly, he did fall off a cliff, land onto a giant spike, and then his head fell in the water and drowned. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> <and> elaborate. <laughs> it's very <laughs> elaborate. And I'd yeah. say it's probably the most elaborate suicide ever performed. Yeah, well, like I said, he didn't jump, he fell off the cliff. Sure, he did. So, um, anyway, he tripped over his sandals. Uh, but he's also it, there's also this whole sense that even though Merlin is this vastly powerful wizard, he's also a Christian too. Yeah. Some stories have said that his mother was a virgin, and the father was an incubus. Some say that was the daughter of a king. Some have also heard her saying that mother was a nun and father was the incubus, yeah. which that adds a whole other level of it because if an incubus is trying to impregnate a nun. You do well, the math, folks. Yeah, how I that think happened. I think one of the more common ones is that a devil impregnated a woman who then repented for all of her sins and then then gave Merlin to God in that right. sense. Well, see, the interesting thing about the virgin story was that apparently Merlin was supposed to be the Antichrist. Yeah. And that didn't work out. So. <laughs> Whoopsies. <laughs> yeah. Because, again, he was baptized. Yeah. Uh, so. But Merlin is the person who, I mean, he taught Lady of the Lake all of her powers as well. Right. And so he's he's very important, and he's always there in the background. Correct. In pretty much all the legends, his powers are extremely vast. Yeah. He's kind of he is very much the sage. You know, mm-hmm. he's the Dumbledore of the story. In fact, Dumbledore. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> was in fact the of course the influence, right? Or, or rather, he was the influence for Dumbledore. So I like um, how we've just now equated King Arthur legends to Star Wars, X Men, and now Harry Potter. <laughs> Come on, Game of Thrones. <laughs> like, I was actually, something else. I was going to talk about Game of Thrones earlier. Oh, were you really? Yeah. No, I really was. We were talking about. I was going to talk about varies actually because we were talking about. Um, oh, the eunuch. The, the eunuch yeah. and the and the and the, okay. and the wafer. I'm thinking. Well, if he had been on a wafer diet, he would not be as heavy as he is. Sure. <laughs> I just want to bring this in because we really should do a second part about Merlin. Yeah, that would be awesome at some point. Um, But let's bring it into the modern era. Yeah, so kind of moving right along. um, Things go quiet for a minute, um, but then once, you know, new romanticism comes in and and kind of this pre-Raphaelite tradition happens, um, you get folks like Tennyson and Mark Twain and all these people. Morris as well. Yeah, who just decide to, you know, bring, bring back the romance of this of these stories sure. and, and they incorporate it into poetry, into art, into music. You know, most famously you have like the the John William Waterhouse paintings of yeah. of Arthurian Gorgeous depictions. paintings. Uh, yeah. yeah, they're great, remarkable detail. Yeah. Uh, but they're extremely common. In fact you see them on the covers of King Arthur yeah. books, you know. These are the quintessential exactly. images and they're almost photorealistic too yeah yeah they're they're absolutely lovely um some of my favorites um or one of my favorites from this time is one of tennyson's poems um the lady of shallot and this is a really it's a lovely poem um very sad about um a woman who is cursed to only see the world through the reflection in a mirror and she has and she's just she just sews all day long tapestries of what she sees in the mirror and one day 
Lancelot goes riding by and she's so struck by how handsome and charming he is that she stops and she looks away from the mirror and looks out the window to see him in real detail and the mirror breaks and she set off the curse and she gets dies, she yeah. gets in a boat and sails off to Camelot and um and gets there and is dead and while they're all like wondering what the heck happened and Lancelot looks down and he's like well she has a really lovely face and it's just it's so heartbreaking yeah. um but the idea is you know kind of using um this Arthur Arthurian style to talk about the world as you know seen by an artist and if you're spending all of your time just creating and seeing the world through a mirror are you really seeing the true world right and, yeah. oh, but the symbolism is beautiful and ah Tennyson you bastard yeah <laughs> this is, it's important to bring this up though because I mean at this point Britain is changing quite a bit we have the industrial revolution yeah now we're talking about we're also seeing modern science come to develop so a lot of these these old world ideas are going away mm-hmm. so people want to still kind of keep some semblance of that alive yeah. To the point where actually even when, uh, unfortunately, in, 1930, in 1834, when the Houses of Parliament are rebuilt because of a fire that had taken place, Queen Victoria has her robing room in the House of Lords decorated in our in Arthurian style to kind of keep that, that theme going. And the robing room is the unofficial center of the British Empire at this point. So, And I think also around this, I think also around, um, you know, 18th, 19th, 20th, early 20th century or whatever um you had somebody who actually just straight up retold everything about arthur but did it in the victorian era yeah howard so that was really cool. yeah um and then coming later on you know there's tons of movie adaptations of oh, course yes. especially um the 1960s musical camelot um which was meant to sort of draw parallels between um john f kennedy administration at the time right of course uh sword in the stone for sword in the stone lovers. from disney and then um there monty was python and the monty holy python grail. and the holy mother effing grail um and in 1982 a book came out and then it was later turned into a tv mini mini series in the 90s on tnt uh the mists of avalon right and this one is definitely a uh post-feminist um look at king arthur legend from the perspective of the women and it's also kind of very pro um pro pagan in the sense that morgan le fay is not a baddie like she has been in you know the kind of interim (laughs) adaptations um but that she um is actually a priestess who's really trying to just save what's like kind of the matriarchal celtic pagan culture and religion um in an ever-changing world so and of course there's the bbc series merlin yes which you know is a total reimagining of the story right because merlin and uh arthur are contemporaries they're they're youngsters growing up together yeah but it's a fun retelling and it's actually a pretty decent show uh i've seen the first two seasons i I still need to watch the last three i i think what the hard part with with arthur's stuff is that everything is a retail of a retelling there is no canon to arthur because everything has just been a retelling upon a retelling which is difficult for nerds like me where i like having canon and everything else is just fan fiction but this is like well god no everything for arthur is fan fiction fiction. there's no such thing as ip (laughs) at this point anything can be in it can be a tale about arthur and be equally as valid uh, very empowering. My favorite movie actually is the Merlin one that was done about 15 years ago with Sam Neill. It was the oh. the whole telling of the Arthurian tale from Merlin's perspective. Essentially, 
kind of like what the the series does in BBC, but yeah. in a much more truncated form. Remember the really crappy movie about Arthur as the Roman soldier, and he like uh, joins the King Celts. Arthur. There was one that was done by Antoine Fuqua. Yeah, that movie was awful. Yeah, that wasn't was really awful. There was the Kira Knightley Clive Owen one too. That's the one. Is we're that talking the one about? we're talking yeah. about? Okay, yeah, yeah, that was really bad. It but that one actually great... brings it as close back to its its historical roots. Well, now. yeah, that was the that was the the shtick with it was that. But we're going with the Celtic tradition, and I. It was an action-packed movie. It was fun, but it, the but it didn't was last. So terrible. Yeah, although Clive yeah. Owen's much better than that. Yeah, so. true. Well, this has been a fun topic. This has been a fun topic, and this was a very condensed version. <laughs> yes, very condensed version. Uh, but you know, it's it's a good place to get people started. So. Yeah. Individuals out there who've never really partaken the Arthurian legends in any of their forms, go out and do so. You have a lot of different ways that you can do it, right? You know, don't take our word for it. Go out there, experience it for yourself. If you want to experience through modern media now, do it. It's a cool place to kind of start and might get you interested in going back and reading uh, some of these fantastic and awesome tales. And if you want to do it the other way around, we'll do that too. Yeah, I, I remember leaving college at one point and thinking that if I was ever going to go back and do my master's, which I'm still thinking about, I was like, I might want to actually focus somehow on on King Arthur and just, I was like, I don't know if there's anything else to be said about it, but if I can write my thesis on it, I will do it and I will read everything. I will read a translation <laughs> of everything. But then I looked at the bibliography and I was like, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> That's why they, they they don't award as many PhDs because you have to read a ridiculous amount of, yeah. of material. I know. Well, and folks, then write a lot. Please, yeah. folks, by all means, go ahead and sound off. Let us know what your favorite legend uh, on Arthur is, uh, or if you despise Arthur for some apparent reason and want to share that with us. Let us know with the listener feedback. Of course, you can do that by going to our website, nerdonomy.com, and clicking on the listener feedback button. And if you're so inclined, there's another button on that website. Is there not, Brian? Yes, there is. You can click on that donate button. As you know, we uh, are supported by both donations and our affiliates. And in fact, if you can't afford to help us out with the affiliates, you can give us just a few dollars, you know, from our PayPal account that gets tied to that button. Or ten or twenty thousand. I mean, whatever you got. Yeah, there. no amounts too large either. Yeah. You know, um, we we I'm actually happy to announce we're actually sustaining ourselves now. Yay! We're not not enough to quit our day jobs, but we're you know we're we're breaking even. Yes, we're not in the hole. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Yet we still have plans. So anyway, uh, any amount you can spare would be greatly, greatly appreciated. And uh, please feel free to, to contact us directly. Of course, you can uh, find our, our emails on our on our website, but also connect connect with us on Twitter. And you can find me at the Brickmont. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at Sarah Ash sixteen. Yes, indeed, and of course you can follow us on our Facebook and t- Twitter pages for just Nerdonomy in general. Naturally, yes, that almost is implied. So, well, Miss Ashley, my dear, thank you so much for coming on the show. As always, in fact, for really, uh, quite honestly, the both of you uh, carrying today's show, I had uh, just a s- small little piece, but you guys uh, really brought everything to life. So, thank you so much. Oh, Absolutely. thank you guys for having me. I always love being on this show. So. Thank you, thank you. Don't be a stranger. I, you know, it's just hard for me not to swear. <laughs> that's a, that's, that's the, really the only reason. We'll keeping it's her few back. and yeah. far between because it's so hard for me not to swear. <laughs> but you did so well today. Thanks. In fact, Brian used more of the bleeps than you did. I know that was that was really interesting. <laughs> Brian used up all three bleeps as Sarah's here. How could you? Yeah, I know. God I- damn it, Brian! You dumb. C- 
Huh? Now we have bleep, to pay. Bleep. Now <laughs> we have to pay. We're no longer self-sustaining. Thank you, Sarah. You watch, and that's the one that Sean's going to miss, too. You watch. Oh, you gosh. watch. Oh. Get bleep. Bleep it. <laughs> and, folks, until we meet again, stay nerdy. Tune into us next week. Same nerd time. Same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye. Bye-bye. Seriously? Seriously. What? Dudley Moore. What? It was a good movie, dude. It was not. What are you talking about? It was. It was actually a very good movie. Liza Minnelli was amazing. It was a good movie, but I'm just saying, how did you mix that up? Oh, wait, I thought we were talking about the Russell Brand one. Oh, the Russell oh, Brand was one awful. was terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Helen Mirren was great. She was.